Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I am your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host, Max Levy. On today's episode, we're going to be getting into a newer album, one by T.S. Monk, called Two Continents, One Groove. This was recorded a, a few years back at a few live performances, but was released in June of this year, 2022. So pretty new to the market and uh, there's a lot going on in this one. So we're excited to check it out. But before we get going, Max, I have a, a jazz question of the week for you, Max. Um, so how are you doing, Max? And my question is, what are some pet peeves that you have as a, a gigging jazz musician, whether it be on the gig or not? Hey, Dwayne, it's good to be here. Glad to go over this this newer album with you. There's a lot to get into. Well, it's a good question about pet peeves. Um, every musician or player is kind of different, I think, with what really ticks them off um, when it comes to gigging. I do have a few things that come to mind. Number one being timing. You know, the time that everything takes on a gig really matters. For instance, um, when you're on a set break, you know, you have to be kind of, you should be kind of aware of how much time you're taking on a set break. Sometimes band leaders will go too long or sometimes will go too short. And so uh, it's hard to gauge in certain situations how to deal with that. If, you know, I'm on the, on the gig and I'm not the band leader, it's not up to me. It's whoever is leading the band or who's ever um, kind of hosting everybody for that particular performance. And so sometimes, you know, I've done two hours straight because the band leader thought that would be, you know, just better for the audience or just uh, get in, get out, don't mess with a break, you know, do two sets back to back. Or sometimes, you know, it's too long of a break. You take 25 minutes because you're talking to somebody you haven't seen in a while. And then, you know, it kind of lingers on. And what it does is it makes the rest of the gig a little weird with the timing because you usually want to do 45 minute to a, a one hour set for each set. And, you know, if you bleed into that with a really long break, the timing of the sets get kind of wacky and so sometimes you have to do a really long set at the end or two shorter sets and so it's just a little awkward with with the timing and it's really uh kind of annoying when you don't know that's going to happen so a lot of times especially kind of corporate event gigs where you may not play you know four or five hours but you play two or three hours and sometimes they want you to play continuously without any breaks and, you know, it would have been good to know that before I actually showed up on the gig, you know, an hour before we're set to play. So that way I could have brought, you know, a big bottle of water or prepared, you know, in a number of different ways. So timing is, is kind of a, a pet peeve and how you deal with it um, can get annoying. Uh, another one is you have to deal with a lot of different people. So... Sometimes like wedding planners or uh, corporate events, you know, there's there's people logistically you have to deal with and that can create a lot of pressure on me as the musician or band leader. Um, and sometimes 
they you're dealing with people who don't really know music and that can be a big pet peeve because you'll get requests for things that should not be you know logistically expected um of you but you kind of just have to go through it and and do what you can and put in the effort and and maintain you know a cordial relationship with those people even though they don't really know what they should be asking in some cases yeah i think um a lot of times i've i've definitely experienced this before it's almost like sometimes non-musicians expect us to be somewhat like radio like like they want something they expect that we can just like almost like an mp3 player we can just like pull it out and be able to do something which is not always fair because like sometimes we're able to do it but there are times where it's like we're gonna it's gonna affect our musicianship so like they're asking you to do something that's gonna affect the quality of the product which you know which we don't want to do honestly we don't want our music to be not as good as it could be and it's hard when someone you expect one thing and they're asked they start asking for something else and you know it's not gonna be up to the standard that you that you set for yourself yeah one brief example um that illustrates what you just said so well happened to me last weekend i was on kind of a a private gig and the planner was asking for us to change our our set list, we had gone in expecting to do just a one hour, all jazz standard set list. And I knew previously before we actually play that they wanted continuous play. So that means you do not stop in between songs like you would normally on a gig. You just either cadenza through or you do a little pedal and then you go right to the next one. And so the easiest way to do that is to already have the set list, you know, in order for the people you're playing with and you just knock it out well she had asked us to change our set list so she wanted more pop tunes which is perfectly fine i'm happy to do that there's some great stuff you know i know from stevie wonder and um kind of some classic r&b so we were doing that but we had to stop in between tunes so i could tell them what the next song would be because they wouldn't know otherwise they cannot read my mind unfortunately and then the woman <laughs> apparently asked us to really make sure we don't stop in between songs and so that really made me upset because you cannot have your cake and eat it too you're asking me to do the impossible as a wind player you know my mouth is on the horn so how am I going to play in between <laughs> songs and say from the very same mouth to the people I'm playing with what the next song is, you know, and on this particular gig, they are uh, one of the people I was with. I have never played before. And the other person was another horn player. And it was, you know, just a little interesting instrumentation to begin with. And it's with people I haven't really played with before. So how do you expect this to happen? It's one or the other. Either we change the songs that you think you want or we do continuously uh, play. We do continuous play with the set list we already created. It's up to you. It can't be one or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that definitely I don't think and that doesn't people don't realize what kind of requests like for you to be able to. Uh, make a new set list full of pop tunes and to be able to play it continuously without stopping, it would take some level of 
arranging that. Like you would need a break in order to say, hey, these are the next six tunes we're doing. And this That's is right. this is how we're going to go from one to another. I just don't think that people think about like the fact that you might be doing tunes in different keys. And so you're going to have to transition from one key to another. And how are you going to get from one song to the next? It's not like every song is just in the same key. And you can go from playing Isn't She Lovely to playing like thriller by michael jackson because they're not you know you're probably not going to play them in the same key so it doesn't you know it's and for you as a horn player for me as a as a a keyboard player and as an organist it'd be different because i can just start playing and i can call the tunes right but you can't it's not like that you can't do that because you're you're playing the horn so that's definitely something i don't know and that kind of goes back to what i was saying of people just kind of expecting it to be more jukebox like you know when they when they hire bands a lot of times especially for events like that when it's stuff that you're playing stuff that they're requesting not stuff from your own songbook so yeah i feel like when they're when they want that they want you know you to play their stuff it can almost get a little too people get a little too request like they'll request too much you know they'll ask too much you know and if you ask for something that's what you're gonna get you know and so they ask for jazz and they should have you know the fact that you're willing to do pop tunes that's great but to ask you to do that and not stop playing that's when the request gets to be way too much in my opinion yeah i was stuck i felt literally like i was kind of in this trance being pushed like the ball in a game of tennis <laughs> it was like it was like pong and i was the you know the the, the ball or the, the the thing that goes back and forth and i did it was you know what do you want that's not really a sound request and why is that sort of ignorance because this is their job i don't you know i'm not trying to be critical or anything but these are expectations you really should understand if you're working with, you know, other people who do other sorts of things, why don't you want to understand like what, what is a, a good request and what is too much? You know, it's, it, we tend to let these things slide when we're talking about music or the arts in society. And there's just a lot of kind of fundamental musical practice that it's societally okay to be ignorant of and that is sometimes very frustrating yeah and i think as musicians when like it can be hard because we want the gigs and we're kind of at the mercy of whoever's doing making these requests because we want the gigs and we want to play but when we put up with things like that like when someone says do this do this and we put up with it and we don't say hey like that's not a reasonable request then that person isn't going to learn that like hey that's not something that, that we should ask musicians you know like that's too much to expect so putting up with it can be hard because then the next person could come in and they might not even be able to do like you could pull that off because you're really good at what you do but the next person might have their whole jazz set list ready to go and then they ask them for something different and they're not ready for that and it, it's it's a lot to expect for someone to actually be able to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's everybody's at different places in their musicianship and yeah, you're right. Maybe their, their song list doesn't include, you know, what the first request 
um, was asking for. And that in and of itself is enough of an obstacle to make one <laughs> upset. But, you know, it was just kind of one thing on top of another. And then there were some logistical issues with that particular um, event, you know, getting there and getting out had to be a specific way. And so, of course, I kind of flubbed that, too. Um, but it was yeah, it was just kind of hard to deal with in, in situations like that really make you appreciate when everything is the opposite and everything goes super well, super right. It's fun. It's engaging. You're having a good time. And just getting getting the um, ability to experience those differences really helps shape you as a musician. Yeah. Yeah. You, Any musician that plays the gigs regularly, you're going to deal with with those kinds of things, you're going to deal with different people and different people handle situations differently. I think I have one quick one before we move on. And, um, this is kind of, it's going to be tied into a little bit of a, like a lesson for people who might be just starting to gig or play out. Um, and this is volume and it's something that comes up a lot. And so it's happened to us like a, a good bit. And it happened when we were younger specifically in high school and stuff is, um, places will you can sound check right and you can be like hey does the volume sound good and they might say yes and then when you start playing the gig they start asking you to turn down which can be really annoying when you've already sound checked and everything and now all of a sudden they're asking you to turn down and some places will do it repeatedly i had one time we were playing at this like bar place um i won't name the place but in this the server or the bartender had the audacity to try to turn my keyboard down like the knob on my keyboard we just stopped playing i was like that's not that's that's not acceptable um but yeah so my advice would be is as a musician um you're always going to be louder once you actually start the hit than you are when you sound check it's just going to happen naturally once the energy gets going so my advice would be anytime you're sound checking if you think you're at a good volume, just turn it down like 10% and then you have some room to kind of fill in a little bit more sound because it, it took me a while. And I think it took us a while to kind of, and it, you have to read another bit of advice is to read the situation. There are going to be events that you're playing that people want you to be front and center. They want to be, they want the sound fully in their face and there are going to be events where they want to just barely be able to hear you. And those like those can suck sometimes because you just feel like, why am I here? You could just turn on the radio. But I mean, we're musicians and you got to take those gigs if you want to want to make it. So, yeah, that's my advice is know, know who you're playing for, know the situation. And also after you sound check, just go down like 10 percent because you're going to get a little bit louder. And that's a good way to avoid complaints. Yeah, those are great points. You know, the situation where they keep coming up to you and keep coming up to you to turn down and turn down. It does happen occasionally. And, you know, sometimes when I get into it, I kind of have a big sound. And so, you know, you can't really turn a knob on the instrument, the saxophone. But, yeah. you you know, you can, you know, kind of reduce the amount of air you're using. Um, think more dynamically. You know, don't be um, too energetic all the time. You know, you can watch your your um, musical dynamicism a little bit, if that's a word. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I think it's just musicianship. And that's going right. to something that comes with time. But 
I would say on when you first start out, err on the side of being too quiet rather than being too loud. So, because I, it's just it's not worth going through the trouble of people telling you to turn down and telling you it's too loud. You'd rather them say, "Hey, can you turn it up a little bit?" and then you go up than having them tell you to to turn down. That's definitely a better experience that you want to go through. So that's one of my biggest pet peeves and. It's more Absolutely. of a lesson than anything, really, because I know at times it's been my fault. But there are places that it just seems like the volume can never be right. It's always too loud. So that definitely yeah. can get annoying as a, a musician. And one thing I want to add is I'm kind of, you know, if you know me or have played with me, I'm kind of always when we're doing sound check, I really just kind of go all out. You know, I do a number of licks at once. I want to do something full range of the horn. You know, so so I try and start out as if, you know, I were in the moment of performing a featured solo and and try and get in into that mindset right away during sound check. So the sound guy knows my levels um, just faster and easier, and then he can gauge that with everybody else. And so, you know, I kind of some cats will just play some long tones or just a melodic idea when they're sound checking, but I kind of try and do a lot, you know, do uh, something up and down the horn, some diminished licks, some extended techniques, you know, get into that mindset of when you're in, in it and you're performing at the moment, you know, that's what I try to do. Yeah. I think that's a good bit of advice. So you don't surprise the sound guy when you're like going altissimo and like all of a sudden he's like, Whoa, I you know, we didn't sound check that. That's way too much, you know. Right. So right. yeah, that's a good point. Well, cool. Let's get into to the album for for the week. Our album this week, as previously mentioned, is the album entitled Two Continents, One Groove by the Thelonious what's his middle name? Sphere Monk. Yeah. The third. Thel- Thelonious Sphere Sphere Monk the Third. Cool. Yep. So yeah, the the son of of the great great pianist Thelonious Monk. He is actually a drummer. Um, an interesting thing that we learned about him is that uh, Art Blakey gave him his first drum set when he was 15, and then he took lessons with the incredible Max Roach. So he grew up yeah. in in the business, so it's no surprise that he's he's really good at, at what he does, and he puts together a, a great a great uh, crew on this one. This one um, was recorded in two different settings two different live performances one was in may of 2014 and the other one was in april of 2016 so they recorded a little while back and kind of far apart from each other but um one thing i like is the sound on this album it doesn't sound like they're different rooms the rooms sound similar you can't tell what was recorded where so max what um what are your thoughts on the background of of this album and uh the players on the album well i think there's a lot of interesting points to say about this album number one it's t.s monk's very first live album you know it's an actual live recording and you as, as you can tell from the title two continents one groove i like they're putting two separate concerts together both on on different continents different settings different atmosphere one would suspect and in both cases, the music comes across to the audience really well. And there's actually some nice audience interaction you can hear, you know, in between solos, at the end of solos, at the end of songs, that, you know, this particular group just is kind of a little more audience friendly than you would think it is. 
and it's just got a lot of energy, great arranging, and the players that make up the band are phenomenal. And so it's just great song selection, too. Um, It's also good to note that this album is on Storyville Records, which is kind of one of the oldest um, classic jazz labels still around today. It's the oldest independent jazz label in Europe and was originally founded in 1952. A lot of their classic records feature Louis Armstrong, Ben Webster, um, I believe Benny Carter, and it was named after the Storyville Jazz District that was in old uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, when jazz was very popular down there. Yeah, so that's a good bit about, you know, kind of the setting. I think one thing um, you said, the audience and the energy, I think that's one thing that's going to be very evident in this is there's a lot of energy and it definitely helps having an, an audience there rather than playing in a studio when there's not anyone, you know, they're clapping after solos and kind of bringing that that energy to the, to the band. So let's get into um, who is in the band. So obviously we have T.S. Monk on the drums and percussion. Um, up next, we have Helen Sung on piano, who she teaches at Berkeley, and she's worked with some some great musicians, Clark Terry, Wayne Shorter, Slide Hampton. Uh, she's fantastic. I think she originally was going to college to be a classical pianist, and at that point, she heard jazz music and was like, nope, this is like, I'm going to do jazz. She won like the Thelonious Monk um performance award something like uh some award from the Thelonious Monk Institute which is you know yeah kind of cool too the Thelonious Monk piano competition okay Uh, she she won that and it's also cool she's originally from Houston Texas and I think she either went to UT Austin for her undergrad or master's so she's a Texas girl there's a lot of great um musicians from Houston in the jazz world and she's one of them she she is phenomenal i actually had the pleasure of seeing her perform once she gave a master class at university of missouri kansas city um a number of years ago i think about four years ago and i was there and she was there with her quartet which featured at the time john ellis on tenor sax Mm -hmm. who's an amazing player Mm -hmm. so i i got to meet got to meet john and and talk to uh helen sung and, and see her play and they did a version of Please Send Me Someone to Love, um, the kind of 50s ballad, or what's 12-8 feel. Mm-hmm. And I am still I'm still feeling the swing that they had from that performance <laughs> on that tune today. <laughs> so Helen Sung is great. Yeah, she's incredible. Um, and yeah, I was kind of surprised by her playing. We'll get into some of the stuff she does um, on the album. So next up, we have Willie Williams on tenor sax, and I didn't realize, but he was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is our hometown, and then he moved to Philly and kind of grew up playing in Philly, Um, and then he was encouraged to move to New York by Bobby Watson, who Max studied with, and Willie has played with Art Taylor, Clifford Jordan, and he's been playing with with T.S. Monk for, for quite some time. Yeah, I believe he's an original member of this sextet. And he's a great player. Um, I, I, Yeah, it was very interesting to see he's from the same town you and I both grew up in. And it's also kind of similar to the story of Jimmy Smith, the tenor player. I be, uh, Sorry, not Jimmy Smith. Jimmy Heath. Yeah, Jimmy Heath. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, getting my Jimmy's mixed up. But Jimmy <laughs> Heath was also born in Wilmington, North Carolina, and then moved to Philly as well. So there's a little uh, similarity in, in their backgrounds. Yeah, there used to actually be a, a jazz scene in Wilmington. There used to be a club in Wilmington. That's where Lee Morgan uh, met his wife, Helen Morgan. She was from Wilmington. Yes, Helen Morgan was from Wilmington, North Carolina. So, yeah, there's a cool documentary on that. I think uh, it's called, like, I Call Him Lee or something like that. I don't, that might not be. I, ca- I called him Morgan. I called him Morgan. Okay, that's what it, yeah. okay. That's a, that's a cool, a cool thing to check out. But yeah, so she was from Wilmington. And so there is some history in, in Wilmington um, with the Heaths. There are a few, Jan, Jimmy Heath and Percy Heath, right? Is their brothers. There's Percy. Yeah, there's Percy Heath, and then there's also Al Tootie Heath. Yeah, he was the drummer, right? That's right. Okay, cool. Okay, so cool. Next up on the album, um, we have the alto sax player Patience Higgins. And so he's a New York guy, a multi-read instrumentalist. He was part of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, and he's a, a Broadway musician mostly and plays has played on a number of uh, different Broadway soundtracks. That's right. He's, he's a... He's a a great player plays all the instruments. Um, every once in a while, he, he kind of reminds me of, of the sound of Bobby Watson actually. Um, but yeah, he contributes, um, some, some decent solos to this and it's the instrumentation is great to have an alto sax and a tenor sax on the same gig. Yeah. There's definitely some good, um, timbres and stuff going on, especially like on the melodies and through backing up different souls and stuff. So cool. Next we have Josh Evans, who is a trumpet player based in New York city. And, uh, Josh has played with Winard Harper and Jackie McLean. That's pretty cool. I believe I read Josh Evans studied with Jackie McLean. Oh, okay. That's awesome. His playing is, is really cool. He's got some, we'll talk about some of his, his different influences. And next we have Kenny Davis on the bass. Um, he teaches at Rutgers and was recorded with Art Farmer, Gary Bartz, James Carter, and Robin Eubanks are some of his the people he's played with. Yeah, and I I really love Kenny Davis's playing on this. It really brings a lot of elements together later on in the album. So I'm looking forward to, to talking about Kenny Davis. Cool. And then last but not least, we have Dave Stryker on the guitar. And I don't know if all these songs have guitar on them, do they, Max? I'm not sure. Um, There's definitely not a guitar solo on the whole album. That's true. He's listed uh, on the credits. I don't know if he's on how many of the the tunes he's on, but I don't. He's not heavily featured on on the album. No, he's not. And it may have been a situation where he was on some tracks more than others during those recorded um, sets. Yeah. At at the locations, you know, at the live recordings. Uh, but it didn't make the album or they went a different direction, but he's listed in the credits. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We're not going to get into him much because he doesn't solo and there's not, you know, but he's listed on the, the credits. So we'll mention him. Cool. So without further, further ado, let's get into the first track on the album, which is called uh Sierra. Yeah. It's kind of an original from TS monk. I believe it was kind of hard to find information about this title. That's the name uh, of his daughter. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So well, that makes sense. I think it's an original um, tune named yeah. after his daughter. Okay, okay. I figured it was an original um, from him, 
and it's great starting out with that because it's you know it's his group it's his tune the song is also kind of um formulaically interesting the way it, the song is set up um i really like the kind of eight bar intro it starts out swinging i, I love the swing feel they really swing this one out it's in a minor key you know it really does swing hard the form is interesting it has two repeated a sections followed by two repeated b sections so it's not a a b a it's a a b b and on the head in they actually do that twice so they do a a b b two times yeah what do you think about that max because i i thought it was interesting because it's a very long form in general it's 32 bar form doing a a b b and they repeat it twice before they get into the solo. So it's a good chunk of time before. What do you think about the decision to do that, Max? I think T.S. Monk must just really enjoy that melody. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it, does, it does seem to drag on a little bit. Two times is a little much. On the head out, they only do A-A-B-B one time through. Yeah. Which I think fits really well. Um, I mean, it's cool that they do that it's a nice tune it's 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 fun to listen to i really like the rhythmic hits in bar six going into bar seven of the form um but it did seem a little long and i had to i had to really keep track while listening to what the form was because the first time i listened to it i thought it was just aaba or something but i had to go in and say oh this is the number of bars that's repeating again here's the melody and the melody on the bridge is actually repeated a second time. So it's not A-A-B-A, it's A-A-B-B. Yeah, it is kind and of interesting to give the bridge as much time as the A section. But I think it, it'll start to make sense once we get into the solos and they do something different on the solos. But yeah, it was definitely, I liked the melody. I like the head and the bridge on this one. But I at first, it did kind of strike me as weird that they did it twice on the head, like the first head. Um so yeah, that was just something that I, I noticed. But then when they get into the solos uh, of this track, they do a double time feel over the A sections, and then they go to a four feel in the B sections. And the this track is pretty upbeat. So when they're getting into the double feel, they're up around like 300 beats per minute, which is just really burning on this one max what do you what do you think about this decision to uh, to go to the double time feel and then back back and forth? I think it's really cool. It, it's a little predictable later on in the track because they do it for every soloist. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an easy go-to for arranging an original, you know, just, just keep it uniform with what the rhythm section is doing underneath each soloist. So that way everybody is together. There's no question. Um, it's, it's boom, boom, boom. And you're dealing with a sextet. So you got multiple horns you got a great piano player you got to get through, great bass player. The drummer's going to want some later on. So, you know, because you're dealing with, with so many great players at once, it's kind of easier to arrange the solos more so that way you get through more solos and you, and you have some more expression that's packed into one track. Yeah, so, and it's easy for everyone to kind of stay on the same page as well if it's, you know, they know what they're doing. Um, yeah, that's I, right. I, I, at first when I listened to this, it took me like actually like sitting down and really getting into what was going on. At first it just kind of felt, and I think one reason that it felt kind of random them switching from double time to 
the four feel is because when Helen sells, she sells first. And then when she ends her sell, she plays over the, the A section before Patience comes in on alto sax. And so she her solo goes from the double feel to the four and then back into the double time. But she's just playing back over that A section again after they've already done the chorus once. So it felt kind of random. But then when I sat down and I listened to it and I counted it out and I realized, okay, well, they're just keeping the form A, A, B, B. But they're doing double time over the A's and then swing four feel over the B's. It, it started to make a little bit more sense. Like you said, it kind of gets repetitive towards the end. But it makes sense that they kept the, the form the whole time. Yeah, and it's interesting to note that playing mistake from Helen, she she does bleed into the form where the alto sax is supposed to start the next solo, which is fine. Um, that happens on the bandstand, and she's awesome. So if she can do it, we're okay to do it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know that 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 was kind of one thing to keep track of. Maybe she wanted. I think she, maybe she wanted to do another time through the aabb but you know ts monk maybe really just wanted it arranged and kept you know the same amount of time uniform for each soloist yeah that would definitely make sense these tracks are already long they're all like nine minutes each so these tracks are already long i could not quite that long but yeah they're they're all you know six seven eight minutes yeah so I yeah, I could imagine why TS was like, all right, we we can't stretch this solo for five minutes. Like you got you get one chorus, one chorus a piece. Yeah, and they really do that um later on in the recording with seven steps to heaven. And I have some quibbles with that, but we'll get there later on. Yeah. So let's get into Helen's solo a little bit. Um, I think she does a great job, a uh, really great job playing in the double f- time feel. And then her transition into the four, four feel is really seamless. And she does this really well. Um, she has a lot of swing elements in her playing. And this song feels almost to me, it, it feels very swing, big band kind of feel. I didn't even, when I first listened to it, it sounded like more of a big band than just a sextet, um, which is cool. I mean, they do have a, a full horn section, you know, three horns. But yeah, so she really gets into that swing feel. Um, but she mixes in uh, like some blues, double stops really well, and she develops her solo really well, which is something she's great at. Um, there's a lick at 318 that she does, and she uses some chordal movement to play around the lick, which is really nice. And yeah, she just, yeah, this is a really good solo from her, and she really, she fits the the energy of the song really well and her playing um, fits the the form really well with the double time and then into the four, four feel. I hate to say it, but Helen's song does a terrific solo every time she solos on the album. <laughs> yeah. So it's hard, you know, it's hard to kind of just dig into this one solo and say all the great things she's doing because she's going to do it repeatedly over and over again. And she's going to be very musical with it. So I don't want to get into this particular piano solo too much just to say that it is, it is really great, and she does go from the double-time feel into the regular 4-4 feel really well, and she treats those different sections differently, um, which I think is the right thing to do. And then, you know, it goes right into kind of the alto sax solo. We mentioned she bleeds into the form of the sax solo a little bit, but that's okay. And again, I think maybe she wanted to do another 32-bar solo, but, you know, that wasn't 
the thing to do then <laughs> apparently <laughs> so the alto comes in and it kind of comes in busier than you would think comes in kind of hot um patience higgins just alto sound is really reminds me of kind of the current bobby watson sound that's that he has right now um patience uses some longer notes and then he juxtaposes those longer notes with faster lines that kind of move up and down the horn. Um, he does kind of the chromatic thing where you do, you know, you stick to one interval, but you go down in half steps doing the same interval. Mm -hmm. And that's also something that reminds me of Bobby. Um, and a lot of, a lot of players do that, including myself. And he does that really well. He has also got some higher sounding notes on the horn, I think altissimo or almost altissimo and so just the range of the alto solo is um kind of bigger than i expected yeah and uh I, I think this is a nice solo um there are some really cool ideas which max hinted at with some of those those chromatic movements and the idea playing the ideas around like some chromaticism uh he hinted the melody of summertime at 357 he doesn't play it exactly and he doesn't land on the the note that the summertime melody lands on, but he, he hints at it at 357, which I think is cool. And yeah, there's some cool ideas. I, one thing that kind of, I feel like there might be a little bit of a lack of direction in this solo, but I think it, it might also be because we just had this Helen sung super well developed solo that like, it's hard to follow that up. It's like when you're like comedians at a, like a comedy club and like someone just goes on stage and kills, it's hard to follow that up sometimes. So I think, this solo from Patience was probably going to be hard to follow up Helen's solo with whatever he played, but there are some really good ideas in this one. I think it's a good point. Um, yeah, the overall arch of his solo is not as well crafted as Helen's, um, and that's a that's a key point to make. And you'll notice that later on too. Um, that kind of those differences in, in the soloists, and then after the alto solo, we get to Willie Williams on tenor. And I think his solo is, is my favorite on the track. He kind of creeps in into his solo. He plays some fat, kind of really fat sounding lines. Um, he does quarter notes when the regular 4-4 four, four time feel comes in. So he's he's creating a contrast of, of how he's addressing the feel change. And it sounds like, you know, he really stops those quarter notes out on the horn, and then the rhythm section catches up to him. So it, it just in that kind of bar and a half, it, it sounds like, you know, the rhythm section didn't cleanly move from the um, double time to the 4-4 feel with Willie Williams' solo. But it didn't matter because <laughs> Williams just belted out those quarter notes and treated that section differently, and then it stayed together and it developed in, in, in kind of a, a very organic way and the rhythm section just complimented him so well once they got into that regular 4-4 time um yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think that's something to kind of expect from a live performance and that's something that's nice is you get that kind of organic you know communication and movement throughout you know different sections of the song i really like his solo here as well i think the altissimo is really well done here and he gets a lot of different textures and ideas um, coming out of Willie here. I, Max, I wanted to ask you, what are you noticing with Willie's sound 
as far as potential influences and maybe some of the different textures that he's going for on the on the tenor sax? Well, it sounds like there's a lot of different influences, but there is an obvious um, sound appreciation I think he has for Coltrane and Train's approach. You know, there's a lot of things specifically about Train's playing that you can hear in other players. One thing he kind of was known for was this sort of sheets of sound approach. And so it's kind of um, texturally an effect you can have on the horn where you're going kind of up and down rapidly. And, you know, usually it's triadic. You know, you're doing kind of a triad up and down the horn and the different octaves really quickly. And so you can do that. For instance, if you think about F major triad, you got F A C. If you play that on the saxophone, you can do that up and down the horn without moving your middle finger. Hmm. So you can move really rapidly from F to A to C really fast up and down the horn. And it kind of creates this sort of um, sound on top of a sound. It's kind of hard to think about, but it's just kind of a sheet of sound. You're not really focusing on the going from one idea to the next. You're sticking with kind of, putting one sound on top of another really fast going up and down the horn. So he kind of has that a little bit in this, in this solo. Um, I, I think there's just a variety of influences, but definitely train is in there somewhere. And you, and you can definitely tell that kind of in the middle of his solo. Yeah. And I definitely, I think further on in the album, that's the, the influence that I, I kind of hear the most in, in his playing is definitely Coltrane. So, yeah, that's... But, yeah, but I will say his his tone, his overall actual sound is not Coltrane. It, uh, or it's or it's a mix of Coltrane and, you know, Sonny Rollins, you know, or, or something like that. It's just a little, a little darker and heftier. Um, kind of reminds me a little bit of Billy Pierce. Bill Pierce, the tenor player, he was with Art Blakey. Hmm and the jazz messengers in the early eighties, um, I believe kind of around the time Bobby Watson was. So I get a little bit of, of Billy Pierce as well, but if, you know, we're thinking about direct influences, train is definitely in there. Yeah. And I think that's a cool thing to, to kind of learn techniques, but not to try to, cause we get some of like, you'll get like people who are like Charlie Parker, copycats and Coltrane copycats. And you don't want to, you don't want to just try to sound exactly like him, but, to be influenced by someone is a complete it's a different thing and to learn some of the techniques and the sheets of sound and the way that he used different intervals and chords on the horn and the way to transition so i think that's an interesting thing to learn is like he's influenced by coltrane but his sound isn't just one for one coltrane he has his own sound and his own tone yeah absolutely that's a good point cool and so the way that they finish this tune out is they go once through the aabb form to finish which thank God they didn't do it twice because I think that would have been way too much at this point. I I didn't yeah. mind it on the head end. I mean it was kind of confusing, but uh, yeah, they just finished it out with the the A A B B form on this one. There's also a cool synth kind of line you can hear later on in the in the recording towards the end of this song, and I I guess maybe that's the guitar or maybe that's 
a keyboard. I'm not sure what that is, but that pops up every now and then on this track. Yeah, I like I, I tried to listen for that. I couldn't tell what it was because the piano's still playing. Right. So it's I don't think it's Helen playing whatever, you know. Maybe yeah, it's that, a guitar through I don't know. Yeah, I definitely heard what you're saying, but I couldn't tell who was doing or what exactly was going on. Yeah, it must be guitar or keyboard um doing that. But but that's you know, cool to listen for. Yeah, cool. Well, let's get on to the second track on the album. This track is entitled Brother Thelonious. Um, this one's written by Helen Sung, the pianist, actually, and it starts with a, a piano intro into the rhythm, the bass adds in, and then the drums. Yeah, one thing to keep note of with this album is a lot of times if it's a song that was written by a bass player, it'll start out with bass. If it's a song written by a piano player, it starts out with piano. You know, if it's a song written by trumpet, it starts out with trumpet. And that's the go to <laughs> for the intros on this on this record. And here it is Helen Sung's tune. And she starts out on piano uh, coming in and then the rhythm comes in right after her. And the melody is really interesting. It has a, a lot of rhythmic play. It's basically kind of two 16 bar sections. Um, there's a lot of. A lot of hints at modalism with this one. We're kind of getting into into modal jazz, which was kind of big around 1959, 1960. We got kind of blue in that history. Um, also, some Coltrane was was very modal too. So there's that train influence again, and and so this one's a little different than the other ones because of that modalism. Yeah, and I I wanted to just touch on modalism briefly because. Let's just get into kind of the difference in modalism versus bebop or, you know, some other post-bop. Um, but, yeah, like you said, the late 50s, and I think McCoy Tyner's a guy to talk about when we talk about modalism. Um, so, yeah. And so, Max, explain to us the difference between your typical jazz standard and the changes that you get in a typical jazz standard versus using modalism um, to, to work through a song. Basically, the difference is in a typical tune, you're going to have chord changes that express the root key of whatever song you're playing. And then, for instance, in the bridge of a song, you may go to a different key, but towards the end of that bridge, you go back to the original key. And usually that key you're going to in the bridge is related to your original key in some way. It's a fourth away or it's the relative minor. Yep something you know there, there's a harmonic um commonality with the key but sometimes the chords themselves you know have their own sound and so when you're in that moment in the form you treat that sound you treat what you're playing specific to that sound that's related to the key yep with modalism you're sticking to kind of one overarching sound that is originally derived from a scale degree of a key so for instance if you're in the key of c and you're thinking a mode you're thinking of a sound that starts on a different note of that scale or key so if you're in c you start on the two so you're starting d so you go from d to d and your root note is D, not C, but you're staying in that C major, just starting on D. 
that is playing the Dorian mode. And so everything you're doing is centered around that note D, but in the context of C major scale. And so it, it changes kind of the root and the, the harmony a little bit, right? If you do a chord based on D in C major, you're going to end up with a D minor chord, not a D major chord, because the major key you're pulling from is C major without any sharps or flats. And D major has two sharps. So you're changing that F sharp to F natural. You're changing that C sharp to C natural because you're thinking C major key, but focusing around that note D. And so that, that changes kind of the harmony a little bit. And usually you stick on to that sound for a longer period of time than you would stick to a chord in a typical jazz standard. Yeah, and I think that's a really good thing to know in like modalism and arranging in modal jazz. A lot of times A sections will be on the one in the whole section. Like if you think of um, So What, that whole section is just on the one. And then the B section, they move up. And I think they move up a half step in So What. But so, that's right. And so in modalism, you're not necessarily, it's more so going to be moving through the modes of the scale rather than moving through the different intervals in the scale. So you're in, you know, a lot of times in jazz, you'll get a lot of three, six, two, five ones and different turnarounds and different things that are, you know, coming back to the one, but in modalism, you're just going to be using different modes of the scale, whichever you're in, like Max said, whether it be the Dorian, um, you know, that'd be probably the most common or Phrygian or, you know, um, and so that's modes of a scale. Yes. Where you take a scale, say C major, you can start the C major scale on any note in the C major scale. And those are all the different modes. So whether you're starting it on D and using all the C major or E or F, those are just different modes of C and modalism uses that instead of using your typical, um, intervals and moving through those in a, in a more standard jazz fashion. And this became really popular in the late fifties. So this is something that Monk did um, often, and McCoy Tyner, we spoke about Miles Davis and Coltrane, um, and Wayne Shorter is a guy who uh, used modalism um, a lot too. So this song, yeah, kind of a different feel. It still has a swing feel. It doesn't get in, like, it still swings, but it's using the a bit of a modal approach to moving around the, the changes um, on this one, so yeah. Yeah, and because of that, this one to me sounds kind of the most modern sounding um kind of the most pushing the envelope um approach to this you know that to this song that they're doing so it, it is a little different than everything else yeah for sure and um on this one uh it starts out with a trumpet solo and I think um, this one feels a little a little busy, but there's definitely some nice stuff going on. There's some really good range and some higher higher notes and higher sections that Josh gets into on this one. Yeah, Josh on trumpet here has some really nice high notes. His his high his um, kind of higher range on the instrument is really solid and more solid than I would think. It's it's almost approaching, you know lead trumpet status not quite you know yeah. but it, it's 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 a bigger range than i would expect yeah he definitely has really good tone and a and a big range which he displays here um 
So next on this one, it gets into a tenor solo. Uh, Max, tell us a little bit about the the tenor solo from Willie on this one. Yeah, the tenor solo is really cool. Again, there's some train elements, um, some nice sheets of sound ideas. I also get a, uh, a hint of Wayne Shorter in mm. his playing. Um, and then at 320, minute marker 320, there's a really good bebop lick just straight out of you know, 1945 Bebop, he plays. Um, and it sounds like to me at minute marker 403, he's playing an idea that kind of alludes to the rhythm that Train played on A Love Supreme mm. on that album, especially the, the during the first track of A Love Supreme. There's there's some stuff he's doing that sounds almost the same gotcha. as what Train, Train played on, on that record. Um there's a really good use of range on the tenor. And overall, he's just very energetic. And I appreciate the energy. And he's sometimes some of the other solos um, from different players on this album aren't up to the same level in terms of um, interest or approach or energy. Mm. And Willie Williams... Um, is actually one of two people I can think of on this album that are consistent yeah. in the in the amount of energy they're providing and the amount of effort they're putting into their solos and the amount of interest I get as a listener from him. Yeah, I think, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, one thing, uh, he quotes The Lick at uh, minute marker 354. Yes, which, he does. Which is just, uh, it's kind of funny. Um if you don't know what the lick is, just go on YouTube and type in the lick and watch the video. It's it's a pretty easy lick, but it's it gets quoted all the time. And it's just kind of a fun thing that jazz musicians will do. Yeah. If Willie Williams is going to do it, I'm going to do it too. Yeah, so. it's, it's fun. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, yeah, he definitely, he's, I like how you put that. He's very consistent. Um, and I think the other person you're talking about is going to be Helen Sung. They're just the most consistent yeah. on this album and every solo has great development great ideas and just they bring it on every single every single solo so cool um yeah speaking of helen song the piano solo on this one is really really killing she has a lot of different ideas um and one thing i want to mention is her left hand is just absolutely incredible she has really good use of her left hand whether it be chords whether it be different ideas that she's mixing into her right hand um she is just really really good with her left hand and there are times when i'm she's soloing and i'm literally just listening to her left hand because what she's doing is so so interesting that's a good point and especially since this is her tune i'm glad that she shines on it you know it would be expected um overall she's very smooth with her playing She's very swinging throughout. She gets kind of busier and heavier towards the end of her solo. So there's a lot of direction in her overall trajectory and overall shape of her solo that some of the other players don't always have. And it, it just adds a lot of great dynamics and great energy, movement, and um, it's just overall shaped really well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, I love the blues lick that she does on the stop at the end of uh, of the solo. And then a horde line leads us into a bass solo. Um, 
And at this point, the song's kind of getting, I like the bass solo a lot, but it feels like the song's kind of getting stretched out. And at times on this album, especially in the beginning part of this album, it feels like they all, or most of them are taking solos when I kind of could have gone for like one or two solos on a, a, a given track instead of four, you know, necessarily. So that's a good point. It, yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you on that. I wish on at least one or two of the tracks they would have just had, you know, like two horn solo and just just have them stretch out a little bit, open it up. Um, later on, the um, ballad Ernie Washington, that one is the closest to what we're talking about. Yep, it's that one is really a trumpet feature. Yeah, and it's the trumpet player's tune, so it makes sense. But that's the only one where we kind of get to that level of, of what we're talking about, where we really want to feature a soloist and have them open it up. Every every other track, it's it's the solos are arranged just as much, or the amount of time a soloist can take is just as arranged as the tune itself. Yeah, and I think this goes back to kind of that big band like swing feel that I was talking about. It feels like that's something that's pretty common in like a big band or swing is like you get like four different solos and they all get a chorus. And just on this one, I just I it feels this this part of the album, there's a few tracks here in the middle beginning part of this album that it's that it starts to feel a little busy and kind of repetitive in a way. And so on this one, I just I really like the track, but I could have gone for just Willie and Helen solos and just make the track a few minutes shorter and you know so yeah but the song it just kind of ends after the bass solo um yeah and I'm not big on that I don't really like how they ended this one I'm glad there's a bass solo I love the bass player on this this album and the bass does some nice stuff in this solo he kind of uh cops the melodic line that the horns are playing during the transition and that's how the bass player starts his solo that's very clever um he's filling up a lot of space he has some really heavy hitting lines that are almost kind of straight and not swung Mm -hmm. you know he's kind of getting really busy with it which is different there's also some bluesy ideas he plays which kind of leads to that final chord but there's no replay of the beginning melody there's no you know reprise of, of that melody and I'm scratching my head going, why end with the bass solo? I'm not musically satisfied. It's um, it's kind of a question mark. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It does, Yeah, at this point, there's like really nice elements on this one. But yeah, there are a couple things with this one that just kind of, that, that I agree with that, kind of irked me that they ended it that way when I felt like, okay, like we have four solos and we can't play the melody again. So Right, I don't get it. Yeah, so cool. So let's get on to the the next album, which is the third track on the album entitled Chessman's Delight. Yeah, this one is a song written by Randy Weston. And for those who don't know, Randy Weston was a very well-known piano player and composer. He was heavily influenced by Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk, which is probably why his tune is included in the song list. And it's interesting, they actually do two Randy Weston originals on this album. There's this one, and then the last one, Little Niles, which is kind of in, in the real book, or it's it's on the app. You know, Little Niles is, is kind of well-known in the jazz world. Um, and this one is also by the same composer, Randy Weston. 
piano player. He's really known for infusing elements of African music into his into his jazz. Um, and because of the monk influence in Randy Weston's compositions and his playing, it really makes sense that they would include not only one but two Randy Weston tunes on this album. Yeah, and this tune is uh is pretty upbeat, which has kind of been the theme to start this 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 album. Um, upbeat, burning, lots of energy. Uh, so they they're keeping with that. Um, swinging hard, you know. The head has like I've talked about, kind of a big band swing feel to it. Um, so this album's very swinging, especially to start out. And yeah, Max, did you have anything about the the melody that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it just it is kind of reminiscent of a monk tune. The way the melody, especially the beginning line, it just the range it goes. It kind of goes up and then immediately back down into a low low register. That's something Monk would do. It sounds like a Monk composition. And it's AABA form, 32 bars, classic standard jazz writing. But the melody to me screams Monk. And it's a shame there's, there is not a, an actual Thelonious Monk song on the album. Which is, I understand you may want to do something different you don't have to do monk if you're ts monk you can do other things that are reminding us of thelonious monk the drummer's father and so i think this is one of those where it reminds us of monk but it's not monk and that's kind of a cool part to this album yeah for sure and uh so the first solo on this one is an alto solo which i think is really nice um he has a cool idea at 52 seconds in the song and um he plays it and then he repeats it over the next set of changes which is cool and then um something about the comping is the bass is doing some some pedal points at uh at the 101 marker which is where instead of kind of walking up and you know doing a walking bass line you're just pedaling on the one or the five or whatever you know in the um so i thought that was cool and then the alto um he reaches a little bit higher on the horn at 110, and he does it with really good control. So I really like his his playing here. And then the last thing I have on his solo is the horn layering underneath the solo at times, which is arranged. Um, but I think it's really well done, and I like the kind of texture that it gives to the, the solo here. Yeah, this is one of the more moving alto solos on the album. He has some really cool diminished ideas during the bridge section. The interesting thing about compositionally this track and the other randy weston track is i think the bridge in both tunes is made up of just two diminished chords i could be wrong about that but it's if i am it's it's similar enough to where the bridges are (laughs) very almost the same and here what the alto does on that bridge is is very killer um i also really love the rhythm section comping on the solo I love the ideas that happen at minute marker 130. Then the horns come back in. I do like that background lick. It's good to have some backgrounds. If there's other horns on the set, you know, we, if we have multiple horns, let's use them. And so I'm glad they do that on this track. Yeah, for sure. And then so as I've kind of talked about with the beginning of this album, everyone's going to solo on this album basically. So next we get into a, a trumpet solo and um, i really like this solo there. It feels like to me, Josh has a lot of Lee Morgan influence and a little bit of Freddie Hubbard, but I feel I hear more like Lee Morgan influence on this one. 
And um, yeah, he has some really nice lines and ideas. There's a really cool descending line down the blues scale at uh, two minutes and 29 seconds, which is cool. Yeah, I, I like Josh Evans's approach, his sound. It is reminiscent of the great Lee Morgan, who was at one time with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, a very fundamental player in this music. Um, there's some cool things going on in this trumpet solo. At 2.11, he quotes a Dizzy Gillespie melody, Burke's Works, which is a sort of minor blues. Um, and he also does some some nice licks on that diminished bridge there's a lot of different ways you you can address those diminished chords or that diminished sound and what josh does is is really interesting here yeah for sure why don't you uh tell us a little bit about uh willie's solo his tenor solo after after uh josh here yeah after josh willie comes in on tenor he kind of starts simmering he's not playing too busy i like he he builds out a low b flat on the instrument and it sounds warm. It doesn't sound honky. It, it just sounds really nice. His tone sounds really good when he's starting out his solo, pulls in that low range. He also has some nice half-step movement that he uses later. And there's, there's movement to Willie Williams' solo. During that second bridge, there's more intensity. Um, the energy is driving. And he ends his solo, interestingly, with kind of very straight, hard articulation. Which is cool because during most of his solo, he's swinging. It sounds good. It, it's kind of smooth, but always moving. And then towards the end, he says, forget all that. I'm going to do some harsh, straight articulation <laughs> to end it. Have some fun. And, you know, that just seems really hip to me. Yeah, for sure. I really like uh, some of what he's doing on this. He starts by quoting the lick that the trumpet player Josh plays right before it. So I think that's a cool, we've talked about that technique before. Um, there's a really cool idea that he plays at 320 and it's pretty reminiscent of some of the licks, uh, some of Dexter's licks on go that we just did last week. So I kind of caught a little bit of that, that influence there, but also the continued Coltrane influence. I feel like, um, it feels like Willie's really well studied and he really appreciated these uh, tenor sax players in like the late fifties, early sixties, um, like Coltrane and, and Dexter. So yeah, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of that influence in, in his playing. And so next Helen takes a solo and uh, just as the rest of her solos, this has lots of great elements to it. Bop lines, really good use of chromaticism and her left hand is just really, really good. Again, there are points in the solo where I'm just listening to her left hand and just in awe. She's just so good, and she's got so much, um, so make great different left hand techniques and dexterity that she she uses. So, yeah, there's a great use of the left hand, and it just provides a lot of depth to mm -hmm. her overall playing. You know, it's a, it. She is really a piano player. You know, Oscar Peterson was kind of known for saying certain things about players like Bud Powell or Sonny Clark, you know, or OP was, was really stringent on what a piano player should be or should sound like, how they should be, you know, using both hands really well, having a full sound, using the full keyboard instead of being a bebop linear player. You know, use that left hand, use those chords, be rhythmic, have some fun with it. You know, I think Oscar Peterson 
we really enjoy what Helen Sung does. Yeah, and that's that's a great point. Is you get some players, and not that they're great, not great players, but who are really focusing on their right hand and you know developing ideas and how you know the lines that they play in their right hand. But Oscar would want you to be your left hand, and his left hand is incredible. His left hand is almost just as good as his right hand, and that's something that I think he would appreciate about Helen is her left hand. It feels like the the licks that she does on her right hand, she can mirror him with her left hand almost every time because her technique is just so good, and she's so well-studied. And, yeah, just an incredible left hand. And just, yeah, I mean, to any kind of keyboard or piano player, it's a good lesson. Like, you've got two hands you can use both of them like you don't you know so really work on that that left hand and good god she's she's incredible with it that's right and later on in her solo she gets more rhythmic as opposed to you know what line am i playing and what texture am i getting she just bangs out some really cool rhythms and that's really neat juxtaposition musically with her overall improvisations um it's cool to to know when she's being more rhythmic or more melodic or, you know, using the piano in a variety of different ways. And she does that splendidly. Yeah, for sure. And then, so there's a bass solo on this one as well, which is really killing. Um, I really like uh, T.S. Monk's accompaniment on this bass solo. I think one thing to note is his use of dynamics is really cool. He's not too busy. He doesn't overshadow the bass soloist, um, but he really adds to what he's doing. And it's really but, nice. That's right. It's a lesson in how to accompany a bass solo if you're a drummer. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, T.S. Monk is not in the way. He he basically sticks to the hi-hat cymbal. He's not being obtrusive with any part of his playing. He's being complimentary, which is what, uh, you know, one rhythm section player should be to another. And so T.S. Monk does that really well. It is a great bass solo. I am really just impressed isn't the right word because these are all pros, but I'm just really um, floored <laughs> by how well this bass player plays. And, you know, I wasn't really familiar with his name before, but uh, Kenny Davis just plays really well every time he's featured on this album. Yeah, and um, even his, like, a lot of his rhythm section work that's just over the melodies and the solos, it's all spot on. He's really good. And I feel like um, at times it might be hard to recognize that, but he's definitely doing a great job on this album. Yeah, he um, he kills it. He has a great lick at, at 627 as well. There's just some really cool ideas he's playing on the bass. Um, and this one speaks more to me than the first bass solo i think this one has some more depth to it and it grooves a little harder i think the first one was just a little too much too soon too straight at times but this one you know it, it it's more proof of what he really does and he shines later on in the album as well yeah yeah and so after the bass solo they do the head out and uh, there's some really cool like offbeat or like backbeat action from the rhythm section over the bridge, which I think is a cool idea. Yeah, yeah, that's great arranging um, on the head out. I love the rhythm section hits during that bridge. You know, it it it's really clever and cool. And they end with, of course, a final chord and and cymbal hit from the drums. So it's a nice ending. 
Yeah. So cool. Let's get into the the fourth track on the album, which is Seven Steps to Heaven. Um, this tune was written by Victor Feldman uh, and Miles Davis from 1963. And this was from an album that uh, titled George Coleman on tenor and Tony Williams on the drums. This one keeps the energy going. The tempo on this one is just super, super burning on this one. Uh, a very rhythmic melody with the drums filling the space in between the hits, which is cool. Yeah, there's there's some stuff to say about the background of this one. This is kind of a Miles Davis standard, but you have to be careful because a lot of times when Miles Davis is listed as a composer, it's likely he didn't really compose the tune. Hmm. He was just in the room where it was composed. <laughs> he was the band leader. Um, or he contributed a little bit and he said, put me on the credits. So uh, there's a history of, of band leaders kind of, of pulling that card. Lionel Hampton, the great swing vibraphonist and band leader was really well known for doing that. Cats would write tunes and then he would go and publish them under his own name. And so you have to be careful when you see Miles Davis as uh, a contributing composer to a tune because I'm not really sure if he did write that song or not. And it's likely he didn't. Dang. Um, Max is calling out miles <laughs> Davis live. Well, that, you know, that's what cats did. I don't blame him because, you know, he, he could make the case, you know, it's his band, it's his recording. It wouldn't be anything without him. So, and maybe he did contribute to the melody. I don't know about this specific song, whether he did or not. I well, just know that that occurred. And it's interesting to note, like, how much does one have to do to get writing credit? Because on uh, definitely on a lot of the songs that we've written together, that's pretty much 50-50. And, like, I'll, I'll come up with a chord, you know, structure, and I'll, you know, you'll come up with a melody, or I'll give you ideas. But, like, how much, you know, do you have to contribute to the song to get credit for writing it, you know? So even if he contributes... 10% and says, Hey, I like these changes here and these changes here. Who's to say he shouldn't get cha- credit, even though he didn't really write the melody or the changes. But if he puts his, you know, changes a few things and gives some ideas, then I, you know, I could see why he'd want to be listed on the, the credits. I guess so. And again, it's, it's case by case. I don't know the specifics with seven steps to heaven. It is generally a, a great album. I love George Coleman's playing, you know, he's not a direct influence of mine, but I appreciate that album quite a bit because of George Coleman and Tony Williams um, from that original 1960s recording of Seven Steps to Heaven. Yeah, those guys are great. Tony Williams is really awesome. Yeah, and um, on this version that T.S. Monk is doing, it's very arranged. It, it is a burning tempo. I think the original from Miles is kind of around 280, 285. Here they're going pretty much 300 beats per minute. Um, it's somewhere around 295 to 305 range. And it seems like they actually speed up just a smidge during solos. Mm-hmm. So they're really burning, you know, they're, they're really pushing the tempo here. Um, as I said, it's kind of really arranged. The soloists only get one chorus each. So they're short solos. It's overall a shorter track. I think this track is less than four minutes mm-hmm. in, in length. So they do that. They get away with that because they tell each player, hey, you only get one chorus. <laughs> yeah. Including, I believe, the drums um, on this one. So 
everyone kind of gets featured, but it's very for a very short period of time, and some players shine more than others. Um, it starts with the tenor sax, Willie Williams coming in. He, he has a decent solo throughout. I think he's quoting the If I Were a Bell intro or the intro to 3 o'clock in the morning. He definitely <laughs> that, is, yeah. Yeah, that we went over last time with Dexter Gordon's album, Go. Yep. And, and so he, he he puts that bell chime in there in his solo, which is is very clever. And it's it's pretty eighth note oriented. A lot of moving eighth notes in his solo, which is kind of the go-to for really fast tempos. Once you become a really great player, it's sometimes easier to just do running eighth notes than to be trying to do too much and and you know with that feel yeah for sure um yeah everyone takes a solo on this and this is at this point in the album it feels like it's very i kind of this is the only qualm that i have with this album is i don't know what fashion or what how the tunes were played live or what order they were played in but i kind of wish that they weren't arranged in this fashion on the album because you get a lot up front and everyone takes a solo on the first like four songs and they're all at really fast tempos and all really upbeat and energetic. I kind of, it kind of gets to be a little busy for me in this part of the album. And I kind of wish that maybe one of the songs was not there or that, that they had arranged them differently or put the ballad sooner to break it up a little bit, but that's going to be my one issue with this album is it feels a little busy at this point. Um, so, and so everyone's taking solos on every song and it feels like there's just a lot being thrown at you. And I'm sure this is not how it was when it was recorded live. Um, so I just question the decision to put these four songs kind of back to back to back like this and not break it up with maybe something funkier or the the ballad. But one thing I really do love is the drum is T.S. Monk's drum solo on this. Um, I'm kind of surprised it's his first drum solo. I could have done with some of the some of the other solos off the album first, you know, um, but I'm kind of surprised this first one, but he does a great job. And one thing that I love that he does is he quotes the melody of the tune at the end of, of his solo, which is just a, a cool touch and very uh, musical from him. Yeah, I'm, we've been waiting for a drum solo on the drummer's gig. <laughs> and here it is. He, he does a great solo. He does stick to one chorus like everyone else. So again, it's kind of limiting. Um, I, I think would have been interesting to hear where else the drums could have gone. Yep. I think maybe for this one, you know, we've talked about in a previous episode, the way a drummer addresses a drum solo that if they're straight ahead oriented, they'll usually keep the form. So here he does that. But honestly with this one, I would have liked him to just kind of open it up. And sometimes when you're playing live, you know, in the club, there's more of a tendency to go there with a drum solo where it's more open instead of just strictly arranged like a recording. Um, but you know, a lot of times if you're straight ahead, you, you do stick to the form in both instances, but you can't kind of open it up here. He doesn't. And I, I kind of wish he did, you know, if everybody else is going to do a one chorus solo, I, if I if it were me, I were the drummer, I would have said, give me a drum solo and have it be open. Um, because there's room for that because everyone else just did one chorus. So, so not much time was taken up and this would have been a, a very good opportunity to really feature a drum solo open-ended 
see what happens to it and let's go there, you know, but they don't. So that's okay. They keep the form, but I, I wish there was a, just a little more time on that drum solo. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with that. I think that kind of speaks to back to what I was saying. Yeah. It just, to me, it feels a little busy. Like, I don't think that everyone needs a, a chorus. It feels like there's a lot being thrown at you, like back to back to back to back. It feels like there's a lot going on on this one. I would have loved to just have maybe a tenor solo and then have two choruses of a drum solo or open it up and not necessarily, you know, like you were saying. So yeah, I, I kind of wish that that happened. It's not, you know, the way it went, but it's still a great tune. Um, but that's something, a critique that I have of this, of this tune in, in particular. So let's go ahead and, um, I will say I do like on this track, how they end it. Hmm. The ending for me does it for everything else. Um, they kind of repeat the last two bar, last two bar phrase of the form over and over again. And then there's short interjections from the trumpet and the alto, just short improv ideas in the space between the rhythmic hits from the horns in the rhythm section. He goes, da, 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 ba, ba, da, ba, da, 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 ba, ba, da, ba, da. Yeah. You know, they, do, they do those little interjections, but they only do it at most three times. You know, I think trumpet does one alto may, may do two of them, but they keep going with the hits and I really wish they had continued those short improvisatory interjections from the horns because it's fun. It was in the pocket. You know, why not stretch that out? It's 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 kind of annoying that they stopped doing those interjections, even though they kept doing the rhythmic hits to a final chord. They had they had more room to have some fun with it and they didn't use it. And to me, it would have been so much more grooving if they kind of stretched that out just a little bit. I'm not saying go on for two minutes with it, but just a little bit longer. It would have been more interesting to me. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, and that's kind of back to what I was talking about. I feel like they could have done like less things and done more of those different things, you know, like instead of everyone soloing, have fewer people solo and do more of it. Um, I definitely agree with that. Let's get on to the fifth track on the album, which is entitled Ernie Washington. And this is a ballad written by the trumpet player, Josh Evans. And this is, this is really nice here, Max. Um, what do you think about, about this one? This is a very nice trumpet feature. It's his tune. I love how they start out. You know, I mentioned earlier, if it's a bass composer, they start out with bass. If it's piano, they start out with piano. So they're doing that here with the trumpet. It's a trumpet player's tune. They're starting out with the trumpet intro. One thing to note about this song is the title. So Ernie Washington was a real person. He was Thelonious Monk, but he was Thelonious Monk's alias. Around the time of the kind of 40s, 50s, 60s um, in New York City, the authorities really like to mess around with cabaret licenses. So in order to perform in New York City as a jazz musician, you needed your cabaret license. But they would try to find any excuse to take it away from you. You know, if you if you got involved with the authorities or you pissed off the wrong people, I know they did this with Billie Holiday quite a bit. Um, there's there's a, a number of different stories of this happening to, to jazz musicians. And so it happened to Thelonious Monk for a period of time. He got his cabaret license taken away. But what he did 
was sign up for a new one under the alias Ernie Washington. <laughs> and so that's how he got away with performing during that period of time. That's definitely a, an, an interesting story. Um, I actually didn't know that. Um, that's pretty cool. Pretty sly of him. Yeah, I really uh, dig this composition. Like you said, it starts out with the trumpet uh, cadenza and some really nice use of space here. Um, yeah, it's good to yeah, it's good to say that the trumpet cadenza is actually a melody quote. It's Monk's tune called "Brilliant Corners." Mm-hmm. So that is kind of one instance where there is an actual musical allusion to Thelonious Monk himself here where Josh is quoting Brilliant Corners and using that melody as his opening cadenza to start the song. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they bring a lot of elements of Monk in and a lot of this one's literally, I mean, entitled Ernie Washington, um, the other one, Brother Thelonious. So they're a lot of references to Monk and this, he plays the melody without actually playing any Monk tunes, which is definitely an interesting choice. And it's a, a cool musical choice. Um, I really dig the melody on this one. Um, it's very sultral, sultry and soulful. Um, and his tone, Evan's tone on this is just really, really nice. Um, great use of vibrato and his articulation is just really on point. Yeah, this is definitely a trumpet feature. I, I also like trying to keep track of the form on this song. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's a 20-bar form. It's something like 18 to 20 bars in the form, which is different. Yeah, it definitely is different. Um, but the Josh on trumpet shines throughout this recording. I love the opening solo idea with a, a sort of repeated 16th note idea he he does a couple times to start off his solo he has a really nice sound on the horn he uses space really well it is a ballad so sometimes as a player we try to fill in that space too much sometimes but here josh evans does not do that he uses the space to his advantage and he doesn't do too much too early to try to fill in that slower tempo he has some great lines and you mentioned his vibrato. I love his vibrato. You know, I'm a sucker for vibrato. <laughs> and I love, you know, to me, the more vibrato, the better. And here he pulls it off really well. He has a cool, mellow sound throughout. It's intentional. It's big. I love what he does at minute marker 419. He plays around with kind of a, a really high note and then reaching that high note from different lower notes Mm -hmm. always going up to that high note that's a cool idea that uh, a lot of players use he has some nice rhythms a lot of triplet ideas and then he's not afraid to hold out a note there's some longer notes in the solo and and some of the ideas he plays and sometimes we think we you know it's kind of um not helpful to do some really long notes or it's not good for our phrasing or it gets in the way sometimes, but the way he uses them here, it really makes for a nice trumpet solo. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think something else to note is the rhythm section comping. Um, they're really on point with this. The bass playing is really good as well. Um, which is not, it's something that you might not pay attention to because Josh's solo is so nice and so well done. But um, when I listened to it the second time, I was more so focusing on the rhythm section. They're doing a, a really great job here. And then getting into Helen Sung's 
piano solo on this song, which is just absolutely incredible. She really kills it on this one. Um, I love the use of chromaticism at 558, and then she has some really nice lines that she um, plays after that. And then well, there's just so many different elements to her playing. I love the use of some chordal movements um, at 630 that helps really build the solo. And then she follows those chordal movements by some really cool blues double stops, which she's really good at as well, kind of some more Oscar Peterson bluesy kind of stuff. And then at 645 to 653, she plays these absolutely insane runs and oh my god it's 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 wild she's really it's it's really good and then just after that there's just so much in the solo she gets into the Crimea River lick um that we talked about on Dexter Gordon's go the and then he she does it like Dexter does it she goes and Oh man, it's just, it's such a cool quote. Um, I absolutely love it. So the way she moves that phrase um, up and down, you know, up the, the instrument a little bit. And then a really cool triplet idea at 708. And yeah, just a beautiful transition back to the melody. This is, this is an incredible solo. This might be her, my favorite solo of hers on the album. She's got so much going on. So many different references, styles, techniques, it's it's incredible she's she's i didn't know she was this incredible but good lord it's great this is my favorite piano solo on the record it is so well done you're right it starts off you know it starts off well it ends really well there's some nice bluesy lines there's chromaticism there's chordal um chordal parts to her solo there's just the way she moves in and out and pushes the intensity throughout the solo she does this uh, i i i can't understand how well she does it it's just fantastic the movement from one idea to the next you get more intensity around the 630 mark as you alluded to there's some really cool 16th note and almost 32nd note clusters Mm -hmm. that she kind of does around that 650 minute mark and i don't I don't know how technically she's able to do it. I'm not a real piano player, but um, it's just executed so well, right? Yeah. Um, it's crazy. And then later on, it, there's kind of a bigger, heavier texture right around the 708 mark. It's a great build around 712. She's using those triplet ideas to her advantage. She's playing around with all the ideas she's using. She's not just simply going from one idea to the next Mm -mm. she's she's going from one idea and tweaking that idea a different way and developing it into the next and creating a a an overall cohesiveness to her solo where it it's so effortlessly in and out of one idea to the next that overall it's one big idea yeah and that's a great point i think um it would be it would be possible for her to just be like these are all the cool tricks i know like i can do these blues double stops i can do these chromatic lines like and just play them all back to back to back but that's not she's not just showing you like all the different stuff i mean she is but she's doing it in a way that's super musical in the way that she's developing her solo and taking one idea and mixing it and melding into the next idea and then presenting a different idea but it's all super musical it's not just like a bag of tricks where she's just pulling stuff out randomly it's 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 super, super well done. And this has led me to 
really want to listen to more Helen songs. So I think after this, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out some of her her own stuff. Absolutely. And during the solo, towards the end, but not at the very end, the audience starts clapping right when we're talking about she kind of has a great build around that seven twelve mark, and and really kind of just brings up the energy so much and the rhythm rhythm section follows her follows her so well the audience knows it and starts clapping before the end of her solo that's you know you're doing something right if they're clapping before you finish your solo for sure yeah so so the audience knew it the players knew it we know it as listeners she's just really knocking this solo right out of the park yeah for sure and then yeah the transition back into the melody is great and one thing i love about the melody is the texture of the trumpet and the rest of the horn section on the melody is is really a really nice timbre there yeah there's a lot of movement um also a, a cool thing to hear for is t.s monk during transitions back into the head and i think in between the solos he plays, I don't know what they're called, but sort of wind chimes. Yeah, um, they are wind chimes. Yeah, chimes, wind chimes, yeah. Yeah, he, he plays those wind chimes here during transitions. So that's a, that's a cool thing to note, too. Cool. Well, um, yeah, that's a really nice track, and that's it kind of starts to move the album in a different direction, for sure, with uh, the, the ballad. So let's get on to the, the sixth track on the album, which is entitled Nomo, which was written by uh, Jamie Merritt. And Max, tell us why Jamie Merritt is important and who he is, because he's definitely an important player in, the, in jazz history. He is. He was one of the prominent bass players of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. There's a lot of similarities in the approach and the musical approach that T.S. Monk does with his sextet that reminds me of Art Blake and the Jazz Messengers. And it's so apropos to have a Jamie Merritt original on the album. Um, and the bass player on this album, Kenny Davis, really does this song really well. He, he, he really puts in effort into that groove and molds everything together. And this, this track shines because of the bass playing from Kenny Davis. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting to note is this song is actually written in seven, which is not common at all in jazz. You get some stuff in five with like um, take five and some other stuff that'll get played in five. But most of the time, stuff is not... This is one of the only kind of... I guess it's considered a standard now that's actually in seven. Sometimes people take different standards and like play them in seven like and kind of mix it up a little bit. But this is this is really cool. And seven's a cool it's it's seven four. So the the it's not the eighth note, it's the quarter note that's getting the feel here, which gives it kind of a really funky kind of and it, the way that the bass line moves, it's really cool here. Yeah, and and also this track Nomo was originally on a Max Roach album. So there's another connection, right? Max Roach that taught T S Monk. You know, this song was on a Max Roach album with Jamie Merritt that was on it. It was Jamie Merritt's tune. It's on the album Drums Unlimited from Max Roach um, right around 1965 to 66 was when that was recorded and released. And because of this composition, Jamie Merritt, I believe, earned the best jazz composer in Downbeat Critics poll that year of that record. Yep. Um, so, so Jamie Merritt... <laughs> Great player 
and great composer. I think most notably, uh, Jamie Mayer is the bassist um, on the album Monin for the Jazz yeah. Messengers. Yeah, that's right. That, he was with them during that time period when Lee Morgan was there as well. And that's one thing to note um, is that this trumpet solo with Josh, he has, I feel, a lot of this Lee Morgan influence in his playing. And this song just kind of took me back to like the the Jazz Messengers recording of that time with Jamie and, and Lee. And it just really had that really soulful, hard bop um, kind of feeling to it, which was really cool. It, it just really took me back to like that that time period yeah jamie was with our blakey from 1957 until 1962 so a really classic era yeah in the jazz messengers history yep yeah into that really really swinging hard bop kind of era when moaning came out and a few other um really good jazz messenger albums cool um the piano solo on this one Helen starts out with lots of blues lines here, which fits the the groove and the funky kind of bass line to this really well. Um, she has some really cool chromaticism at the six minute mark, and then she builds um, some ideas around that chromaticism, and then she gets kind of right back into the the blues licks and feels after this. And uh, once again, some really awesome use of the left hand at six forty three. And then there's a piano cadenza, which this cadenza is just super. It's just Oscar Peterson-esque, in my opinion. Um, she starts really bluesy, lots of double stops, um, which blues double stops, if you don't know, it's if you think of like blues piano, that's like that kind of sound that you get with, where you're playing two notes and you're moving ideas using a lot of two note ideas. Those are called double stops in blues. So she uses, she starts out with a lot of those, with a lot of bluesy lines and double stops. And then she gets kind of into some more chromatic and bop style lines, um, which is really cool. And I think this is something that Oscar was known for, was these kinds of cadenzas. And he did them the beginning of the song, the middle of the song, the end. Like Oscar, at any point, it could just be an Oscar cadenza, an Oscar feature, and he could go for, I mean, I remember a recording of Blues Etude where he'd, plays this like cadenza in the middle and he just is hinting at every kind of blues music ragtime swing stride so this is just very oscar peterson and i think i think oscar peterson will be proud of helen's playing she's just so so good and you can tell that she's she's listened to some oscar and some errol garner and guys like that yeah her cadenza reminds me if you mixed oscar peterson with errol garner with a hint of mccoy tyner and a little thelonious monk yep it's all of them together. And the cadenza is a part of the arrangement. It also occurs during the alto sax solo mm -hmm. and the trumpet solo that precede the piano solo. And here, I just want to say the alto sax kind of starts to shine to me a little bit more on this solo that the alto saxophone takes. Um, we're kind of actually getting, and I don't know how else to put it, but we're getting kind of a balls deep gutsy approach finally yeah on the alto saxophone that i was kind of waiting for earlier in the album from patience higgins and here he just does some really nice stuff during that cadenza some falling chromatic trills um really nice blues lines and and the alto sax solo also speaks to me on this track yeah for sure i think yeah we're starting to get a little bit of some personality and this is why i wish this track had come soon this is like that, that one issue that I have with the album, I wish that this track wasn't the second to last track on the album. Like I, I wish this had come sooner. Um, I love the feel and everything about this and the playing on it is, is really nice. 
So um, I love the the call and response from the horns and the rhythm section on the head out. I think that's really nice. And then there's kind of a vamp out with the horns um, kind of all blowing over the groove and just kind of working, you know, blowing uh, together and playing off of each other and whatnot. Yeah, there's some nice horn interplay, and we're finally having some fun, I feel like. Yes. I was really wanting some fun with that ending of Seven Steps to Heaven, and they started to, and they took the fun away from me. And here, (laughs) they actually... (laughs) <laughs> they they put it back in um and they kind of fade out with that with that fun horn interplay and this whole track just seems more fun and seems more grooving i love the the funk feel um the 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 hint of the blues and what everyone's doing it's just a really really fun recording yeah, I definitely agree with that. I'm, I'm, this at this point, I'm like really starting to to get into to what's going on here, and I, I definitely like what they've got going on. And so the last track on the album, which we have alluded to, is a tune entitled "Little Niles," which Max had mentioned is written by Randy Weston. Um, I believe about his son, right? Yeah, that was the original name of Randy Weston's son. Cool. Yeah. So this is a, a really interesting tune it's way different than the rest of the album um the groove is really really funky it's almost like a getting into like some some funk stuff funk jazz kind of stuff which is really cool and then the b section they they go into just a four four swing feel and it's kind of cool and it's on the melody they do there's this like swing feel but then there's like a lot going on in the piano comping and it's just kind of it's really interesting what they what they've got going on there the arrangement of this one is, to me, the most interesting out of the set of, of tunes on this album. And it's also important to say the original um, version of Little Niles is really kind of just solo piano by Randy Weston. And it's originally a waltz. So it's originally in 3-4. But here they do 4-4 four, four, and they do a mixture of the funk groove and then they swing the solos um and keeping the form throughout and so just the way they're arranging this song is quite different from the original the bass line is very interesting to listen to you know kenny davis kills it holding everything together there's a couple different ways to think about the time on this one you can kind of think double time or you can think kind of in two you know a slower two or a really fast four the form of the song is aaba yet all the sections are 16 bars each. So here we have a 16-measure bridge instead of an 8-measure bridge like the first Randy Weston tune and also like a lot of more typical jazz standards. Here we, we double the length of the bridge. It's got two diminished chords that are 8 bars each during that bridge. And during that bridge, they go into a 4-4 fast swing feel. There's some nice piano comping, like you mentioned, behind that horn melody. And there's also um, kind of the James Bond theme thing to do where you kind of move five to flat six to six back down. Yep. That happens in the ninth and ninth to 12th bar of the form. And so you get that alluded to a lot in the solos and you can hear it in the rhythm section behind the melody. Yeah. And I think that that theme is actually, I've heard it at different points in this album, not as, 
is um in your face is here but that's a really cool thing is yeah that chromatic movement from the five to the six and back down the da, 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 that kind of thing um exactly that's it yep uh which is cool it's like kind of like it's it's kind of jazzy but like it's you know but um and it's written into the the arrangement here and it's in the the chord structure so they all kind of hint at it which is really cool um yeah and one thing so they the A section is is super funky, and then when they get into the solos, they just start swinging super hard, and it's just swing feel on all the solos, which is cool. Um, the trumpet solo on this one's really killing. He has a really good use of space, and he a lot of good communication and kind of listening with him in the rhythm section at times on this one. Um, and I think the rhythm section is really awesome and really tight on this one, and they do a great job of highlighting uh, some of the stuff that, that Josh is playing on this one. Yeah, yeah, Justice really well. He has a nice build in his solo right around the 350 mark. You can hear that. And then after that, um, the piano solo comes in and she kills it once again. There's some really nice interplay with the drums during the first bridge of Helen Sung's solo. She also quotes the melody to Donna Lee and mm-hmm. it's a minute marker 528. And then it sounds almost like she's kind of almost hinting at flight of the bumblebee right after. Yeah. It, yep. You know, I, it's, yeah. it, it's that similar chromatic movement. Um, she's messing around with the James Bond thing right at 540. And then she kind of has a heavier texture and there's some great sort of piano banging. I don't really know how else to describe it, but that occurs. It's at minute 614 and really builds into the 622 mark. And again, at 634, she alludes to the James Bond five flat six six movement. And there's just a right after her solo, there's kind of a seamless transition into a drum solo. Yeah. And I I think her solo solo here is incredible. It's everything that she's done on this album has been spot on. And this solo is no different. Um, She does a really cool ascending line at uh, 454. Some cool rhythmic hits at 506, and then the build of the intensity and the ideas is super great. Her development of solos is just really, really, really good. So um, I think she does that super well on this tune, and I really dig the TS uh, drum solo on this one. And I like that he kind of stretches it a little bit, and it's kind of they're kind of starting to get into what I wish this album did more in the beginning, which is they start to stretch. They start to kind of get some different feels and everyone's kind of feeling and grooving and having fun with it. Um, and I felt like the beginning was maybe a little busy. Everyone kind of got their one chorus and out. And now it's starting to be a little more fun, a little more open and stretched out in parts. And I, I really like that. And, uh, this one feels kind of free. I don't know if he necessarily keeps the form. He definitely counts them back in and they go into the, the funk feel that the, the melody has. The amount of time the drums is taking is one chorus plus one a section. I counted it out. I don't know if that's on purpose or if he wanted to just do one chorus and then he wanted a little more. So he kept going. Also when the band comes back in, when he counts, them in it's just rhythm section for one a section mm-hmm. so they're taking their time getting back to the head so it it seems like it's kind of open but it's not taking up enough time to really for sure say it's an open drum solo 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's not like he actually does come back in on a an even bar. It's not like he's coming in in the middle of a, a section necessarily. It's not like he's coming in the middle of what would be the bridge or the one of the A sections. So I definitely see um, what you're saying there. And it's cool that they they do come in with the rhythm section. They kind of set that that funk groove back up for the the melody at the end. Yeah, it really molds nicely. They take their time. It seems sort of seamless it's a great transition back into the head on the head out i really like they write out the last four bars and how they do that there's some piano on top of what's going on some cool stuff by the drums too ts monk adds a little flavor to what he's playing and this is a, a second instance i think where they're actually having some fun then they end there's a short piano cadenza and kind of a call and response between the horns and the piano that's followed by a final chord to end the song. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely like that. I like how the rhythm section, it kind of feels like they're having some fun there and they're kind of changing up some different feels a few times. And, and yeah, then that cadenza to end, um, which is, this is a cool way to end the album. And I, I really do enjoy this track. So let's get on to our top threes and our not-so-hot track on the album. I'm going to go first this time. Um, so my top three is I had at number one, I have Ernie Washington, and I really like this ballad. I like that it's an original ballad. I think that the reason this is my number one, though, if we're being completely honest, is Helen Sung's solo is just it's it's masterful. It's probably one of the best. Max is making funny gestures. It's one of the best piano solos I've heard in a while to come out recently. So, I I had to I had to give her the nod on this one. I had to put this track as number one. And it's just really it's not like the rest of the track isn't great. Josh is great. The composition's great. I love it. So, but Helen, good God, it's incredible. So Ernie Washington has my number one. Um, number two is, uh, little Niles, which we just spoke about just a great tune. Um, I really like the funk. Like I, I love how they fuse the funk and the swing. Um, and this is just what I've been wanting from this album, um, the whole time. So I really, really dig, uh, little Niles and how they have fun with it. And then, um, third is, uh, Nomo, the Jamie Merritt, uh, tune and i just love that this is in seven i love the the bass groove is really awesome on this um yeah and they're just having fun on it and i i love the the feel of it and uh and everything that so yeah the and if you notice my favorite three tracks are the last three tracks on the album not that the first the first four are good but it feels to me it feels a little busy and i really like the opening song sierra i almost put that on my top three but that's a uh an honorable mention. So, but my not so hot track has got to be uh, Seven Steps to Heaven. This is like kind of that fourth tune before they get into some of the different the ballad and some different funk and groovy stuff. And it's just at this point, the album's feeling really busy. I don't feel like this song speaks to me much. Everyone takes a solo when I don't think they need to. So this album, just uh, this track, I could really do without it. It's it, it doesn't do much for me on this album. This is probably the first not so hot that I'm just like really did haven't cared for on an album. I really did. This tune didn't speak to me much at all. You're not so hot is really not so hot. Yeah, it really is for <laughs> once. So um, you make some really killer points. I think you're spot on with with your reasoning. 
my list is a little different just because of some personal preferences. Um, I try to take into account everything from arrangement to solos to instrumentation features to um, how well each song is related to the history of Monk and T.S. Monk. So I, I applaud your number one because if I were just thinking piano solos, that would be my number one as well. But I didn't, unfortunately. So my number one is Little Niles, the last track of the album. I think it just grooves really hard. When the swing comes in on the solos, it swings so hard. There's some really nice solo features. I dig the arrangement. And, you know, the, the, the song choice is cool. I love the minor key. I love the bridge and, and the, just hearing the way the different players address the form of that song is really interesting to me. Number two, I had Nomo, which was Jamie Merritt's tune. The seven, four groove is funky. He holds it together. It's great bass playing. It's also really phenomenal solos on there. Um, I love the open cadenza that each player gets when they're soloing. Mm -hmm. And it's cool also how they cue the band back in. They play that particular lick from the melody as a cue. So there's no awkward counting people in or trying to cue. You just do it by playing the lick of the melody. And that, that seemed to be such a seamless transition that I have to give props to the arrangement and it's a killer piano solo, and it's killer bass playing. So that's my number two. Number three was Chess Men's Delight, which was Randy Weston's other song on the album. I really like the melody, and that one to me really alludes to some things Thelonious Monk would do in his compositions. And just compositionally, and the, the way that tune is made up, it fits so well with the name Monk. So that was my number three. My Not So Hot is different than yours. It's Brother Thelonious, which was Helen Sung's original. I like it. I like the title. You know, clearly we're trying to portray Thelonious Monk in our minds when we're playing that song, having it be Brother Thelonious. But I just don't feel like it um, is relevant to anything else that goes on in the album. It's modal. It's a little too much. It has a weird ending. You just end with the bass solo. I don't understand that. Um, Helen Sung sounds great, but she sounds great on everything. <laughs> so I'm not going to you know, put it on my list and not have it be a not so hot because it's Helen Sung's original. There's just too much I don't like about it that that's why it's my not so hot. Yeah, I definitely can see what you're saying there. That's kind of in that part of the album where things start to get a little busy for me. So yeah, let's get into our overall thoughts and ratings. Um, I thought that T.S. Monk and company, they really bring the swing in a big way on this one. They're swinging super hard, and I love that. It feels like it's an encapsulation of Monk's personality and what he likes. Um, there are lots of great different elements from jazz on this one we get swing blues all the way out to some really funky stuff at the end which is cool um i i've said this but i do feel as though i law a little bit is lost in the choice of the consecutive high energy burn and tempo songs at the beginning part of the album 
Um, this section starts to feel a little busy and over-energized, in my opinion. I just wish it had been arranged differently. The tunes, not necessarily take some of the tunes off, but just put some other stuff in different spots. Um, but yeah, I um, I just wish some of the latter featured tunes had been interjected sooner. But um, Helen Sung's playing on this, absolutely phenomenal, and she is a force to be reckoned with. She really really stands out on this album um she's a master of many techniques and styles and it's evident that she's super well studied in the language of jazz piano and uh, i have no choice but to feel like oscar peterson would approve of, of helen's songs playing on this album um and i really like that monk felt like he could put together a live album and do what really spoke to him personally um this feels like it's just kind of He's doing what he wants to do, and I like that. Um, I like the energy that that they bring. Uh, it's awesome, and they all bring good energy. And I think this is a great way to carry on his his father's legacy. And uh, I think this is super well done by Monk Monk and crew on this one. Yeah, two continents, one groove. It's definitely a really great live recording. There's some nice features on the album throughout. It does bring together many elements of jazz. You get the swing feel, you get the funky groove, you get different time with the 7-4 feel. Um, and it does represent, I think, what T.S. Monk and his sextet is really all about. And I love that Willie Williams, the tenor player, is, is still in the band. I think he's an original member. And he's one of the two most consistently interesting players to listen to on the album. Him and, of course, Helen Sung. The bass player, Kenny Davis, contributes so much to this album. The, you know, the way some of the tunes are arranged and the um, origins of songs like No Mo, they, they could put a lot of pressure on a bass player. And here, he just knocks it out of the park. He just goes all in, and it feels so good with what he's playing that everything else fits into place. I, I enjoy that particular song, Nomo. The groove hits really hard. And I love that there is an original ballad on the album. You know, not enough people write ballads anymore. Um, and the, the fact that Josh Evans, trumpet player on this, they do his ballad and it's his feature, it stands out really well compared to everything else. Um, you know, there's some, there's some nice contributions from Patience Higgins and really everybody, but to me, both Helen Sung and Willie Williams stand out the most. T.S. Monk opens it up a little bit, has some nice drum solos. And I agree, there is some strict arranging and it seems to get in the way of musically what they're doing. And it deters from the possibility of really stretching some sections out that to me could really be stretched. They could be opened up, maybe a longer drum solo, maybe not have everybody solo on Seven Steps to Heaven. Um, I just I just think there's a little too much arrangement maybe where I would have liked to have seen some, some more open-ended musical explorations. Um, overall, it is a good album. I like the allusions to Thelonious Monk, even though they don't play an actual Monk tune. It's overall a swinging affair, 
And I think it deserves a listen from anybody and everybody who wants to know jazz, who likes jazz, and is looking for something new to listen to. Overall, my rating is an 8 out of 10. Yeah, and I forgot to give my rating. I'm actually right here with you, Max, on this one. Um, 8 out of 10, despite some of the things that I, the problems that I had with the arrangement of the tunes on the album, um, I think the playing on the album is fantastic, and it's definitely worth listening to. So I'm right on board with the 8 out of 10. So that makes our combined score on it um, 8 out of 10 as well. That's some easier math easier math for you to do this time yeah i was like kind of right in the same spot as you i'd seen your eight out of ten i was like somewhere in like the 7.8 to 8.1 and i was like i'm i'm with max on this one eight out of ten seems like a, a good a really good score for this one uh, for a really good album so max why don't you tell us um what classic jazz album we're gonna get into next like we got an interesting one coming up here yeah i had the pleasure of picking the next classic album that we're gonna review and analyze and go over and I wanted to make sure that we didn't get too far ahead of ourselves with completing episodes and getting 45 episodes in and not having a record with a vocalist on it. So I want to make sure we get a vocalist in on the, the rotation here. So we're doing one of the preeminent, uh, I don't know, recordings of one of my favorite singers, Nancy Wilson. So we're doing an album, I believe from... Uh, early 1962, Nancy Wilson with the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. So you got Cannonball and Nat Adderley on it, a great rhythm section, and um, most of the album features the terrific sounds of Nancy Wilson. She's got a great vibrato, great approach to singing, and this is relatively towards the start of her real career. Um, I believe Cannonball kind of told Nancy Wilson to move to New York and really go for it. And so this is kind of a collaboration, not only between two great jazz musicians, but I think two great friends. And so it's a really interesting album. There's not vocals on every track. It's a mix of instrumental and vocal features. So there's a lot to talk about and, I'm kind of really excited to go over that that album, Nancy Wilson with the Cannibal Adderley Quintet. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into this one. I love Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley, but I've never listened to this album before, so I'm I'm super excited to to take a listen to this one for the first time and kind of break it down um, for everyone on the podcast. But yeah, so that's all that we have for this week. Uh, I want to thank you all for joining us and diving into this T.S. Monk album, a really, really solid album worth a listen. Go check it out. Um, I just wanted to let you know, if you have any listener questions, we'd love to have any kind of questions or recommendations that you have about albums or jazz in general. Um, our email is thejazzjampodcast at gmail.com. So if you do have any questions, feel free to, to reach out. Um, but I just want to say thank you for joining us this week. Uh, for Max Levy, I am Dwayne Gunnels, and we'll catch you in the next one. <laughs> <laughs>